Hi, this is Pastor Curtis. I want to thank you for checking out the Family Church Podcast. I hope it encourages you and inspires you to take your next step of faith. You can find out more about how to do that at our website, familychurch.xyz. And if you know a friend who needs to hear this message, please forward it on to them. I hope you enjoy the message. You know, the problem with preaching a message on heaven or hell is it tends to make the Bible a book about heaven or hell. But that's not true. The Bible isn't just a book about heaven and hell. The Bible is a book about God's love and God's will. John tells us in 1 John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because, here it is, God is love. The Bible is a book of God's love and God's will, and and people who are ignorant of that fact, they're the ones who question God's love. And the point of attack usually comes in the form of a couple of questions. The first question is usually asked in the context of all the pain and suffering, violence and injustice in the world. And people will reference that, and then they'll ask, how could a loving God allow something like that to happen? Some of you have probably had someone ask you that question. You walk with Jesus long enough, and someone will ask you that. Some of you might have asked it at some point in your life. If God is so loving, then why does, and then then they'll reference some social injustice or tragic event that happened. Why does God allow that to happen? And then the other point of attack on God's love comes in some form or variation of this question. How could a loving God create a place like hell? Now listen to me, dear ones, because that's a trick question. That is a trick question. It's the same question that Satan asked Eve in the Garden of Eden to cast doubt on God's love and benevolence towards us. It was packaged a little differently then, the first time he used it, but it's pretty much the same question. So be warned, don't fall for that question, dear ones. Don't fall for it. Because the true question isn't, how could a loving God create a place like hell? No, the better question is this. How could anyone refuse a God who loves them so much? So up front, I want us to look at a couple of facts about hell. Fact number one, it was not a part of God's original plan. It was created. Hell was created after the fact to accommodate those who chose to pursue their will over and against God's will. Matthew 25, verse 41 says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for Here it is. You want to know why hell was created in the first place? It was created for the devil and his angels. That, folks, is why hell was created, for the devil and his angels. So look at me now because I want to tell you something right now, and God wants you to wrap your mind around this fact. God did not prepare hell for you, okay? Understand that. God did not prepare hell for you, but he did prepare heaven for you, all right? John 14 tells us that the Lord is preparing a place for us. John 14, verses 1 and 2. Let not your hearts be troubled. In my Father's house are many rooms. Some translations say mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for who? You. So fact number one, God didn't create hell for us. Fact number two about hell, and this is really amazing when you think about it. It actually had to be enlarged later because of the masses of those who willingly defy and deny the will of their creator. So why are we talking about hell and judgment? I mean, it's not exactly a topic that most people are drawn to. 
in over 32 years of pastoring here, I don't recall everyone, anyone ever coming up to me and saying, hey, pastor, would you do a series on hell? <laughs> now, I get a lot of requests for series on heaven, which we'll talk about next week. But no requests for hell. And you see, there's a reason for that. It's a hard topic to talk about. It's a very hard topic to talk about. Sue and I were at a graduation reception yesterday, and we saw Kendra Dwyer, who's a faithful part of our eCampus church. Hello, Kendra. I believe you're watching this morning. She told me how she was a little conflicted about this morning's message because she wants to know more about hell, but not too much. <laughs> and I thought, man, that, she, she nailed it. Because isn't that how we all, we want to know enough not to go there, but don't tell us too much, right? Don't tell us too much. But here's the deal. Whatever description of hell God saw fit to include in the Bible is probably what we need to know, right? So that's why, that's what I'm going to try and do this morning. I'm going to try and tell you what the Bible says about this place called hell. And it is a difficult subject to talk about or even think about. I believe it was difficult for Jesus to talk about as well. But you know what? He didn't shy away from doing so. In my study this past week, according to my calculations, Jesus preached about or taught about hell 33 times. That's about once a month during his three and a half years of ministry. See, only Jesus could get away with that, right? If I preached on hell once a month, y'all be looking for another church. And frankly, I wouldn't blame you, right? Jesus actually taught about hell more than he did heaven. Why would he do that? You ever think about that? Why would he do that? I believe Jesus preached more about hell than heaven because he didn't want anyone to go there. He didn't want anyone to go there. See, statistically, only about one out of every two people actually believe there's a hell. In fact, if the U.S. were 100 people, here's how it would break down. 55 would believe in both heaven and hell. 17 would believe in heaven but not hell. And 25 would believe in neither. Now, see, this actually makes sense to me, and I'll tell you why. If I were the devil, I would try to convince you that there's no hell. And if there is, let's not take it too seriously. And let's believe that most people wouldn't be going there anyway. And if you were a follower of Christ, and I could convince you that hell isn't real or not that important anyway, you know what you would do? You would live ridiculously self-centered lives. And you probably wouldn't be motivated to share your faith with very many people and really have no sense of spiritual urgency. If I were the devil... I would probably try to convince you that there's no hell. And if there is, let's not take it very seriously. So back to the question of why hell exists in the first place. If God is so good and God is loving, why does hell exist? I'll give you two reasons that scripture teaches why hell exists. First, hell exists for God to deal righteously with Satan. See, many of us, when we think of Satan or we think of the devil, we, we tend to think of those Cartoons, you know, where we see the, some harmless dude in a red suit with a pitchfork and horns. See, we need to understand that the devil is actually the embodiment of all evil. He's, he's behind every addiction. He's behind all physical, sexual, emotional abuse. He's behind all fear, all pain, all shame. That all comes from the prince of darkness. He's the father of lies. How do you know the devil's lying? His lips are moving. He's the thief that comes to steal your joy, to kill your faith, to destroy your health, to ruin you financially, to wreck your marriage, to destroy and hurt your children. Why does hell exist? Hell exists for God to deal righteously with Satan. Hell also exists for God to deal righteously with unbelievers. Now, see, here's where it gets complicated. See, many people would say 
That just doesn't seem fair. I mean, my neighbor's not a Christian. My neighbor's a good person. They even bake brownies and bring them over. Surely God wouldn't send someone to hell who bakes brownies and brings them over. But think about this. Many of the same people who would argue or make an argument for why God would send a good person to hell, that same person would also argue for justice. In other words, anytime there's an act of injustice on earth, people want there to be justice. If, if you hurt somebody, then somebody should pay for that injustice, right? Yet the very same people who are defenders of justice on earth often argue for a God of love, mercy, and grace without any justice. You ever thought about that? Many people today, they want to remake God in their own image to justify their own lifestyles. I mean, you know, God is love, right? So he's just going to kind of give a little wink towards sin. I mean, he's holy and righteous and everything, but, but hey, he does love us and he understands. You know, yeah, God has standards and we know that, but you know what? He loves us so much that it really doesn't matter how we live, right? Here's what we need to understand. It's impossible for God to be a holy God without being a just God. His holiness and justice are two sides of the same coin. So this morning, I want to try to give you a brief glimpse of hell. We're going to look at Luke chapter 16, where Jesus told a story that gives us some insight as to what hell might look like. It's the story of Lazarus and the rich man. But before I look at the before we read the passage, I want to I want you to understand something because many Bible scholars and theologians believe that this wasn't a parable, but it was a real story that this actually happened. And the reason they believe that is two things. Number one, the story is never called a parable. Many of the parables, if you'll, if you'll read them, they, they say, and then Jesus told a parable. It's kind of introduced as being a parable. Not so here, right? Another reason why many theologians believe that this was not a parable but a true story is because someone in the story is actually named Lazarus, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. By the way, this isn't the same Lazarus that was good friends with Jesus that he rose, raised from the dead. This is a different person. But they use the actual name of a person. All the other parables, read them. They don't, they don't mention anyone by name. So that's another reason why many theologians and Bible scholars believe that this was an actual true story. So having said that, with that background, let's read the story. Luke chapter 16, 19 and 20. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. Who desired, verse 21, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. We'll talk more about that in a second. The rich man also died and was buried. Verse 23, in Hades, buried in Hades. Hades is Greek for hell. That's a Greek word for hell. Being in torment, apparently this word torment was important to what Jesus was teaching here because that same word or a variation of it appears no less than four times in this story. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish. That's another variation of that word torment. I am in anguish in this flame. So Jesus talking here says these two things about hell. It's a place of torment and anguish and it's a place of fire or flames. Verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but
but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Third time Jesus used that word. And you are in anguish. And besides, verse 26, all this between us and you, a, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from here to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of, again, torment. Fourth time Jesus used that word there. 29 and 30. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, real quick, let me remind you that this was Jesus talking here, okay? Jesus was the one that told this story, so this should end all debate about whether or not there's a hell, okay? Jesus pretty much laid it out there. No, there is a hell. He referred to it, right? Jesus refers to a specific man with a specific name who was in hell. So based on these descriptions of hell that Jesus gives us, I want us to look at three things that happen to a person that goes to hell. First, they desire comfort. Verse 24, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Rich man calls out to Abraham and asks if he could send Lazarus over that he might dip his finger in some water and just place it on his tongue, hoping to find some relief. Notice, notice he didn't ask for a bucket of water. He didn't even ask for a cup of water. He just asked, this is amazing. He just, he just asked if Lazarus could dip the end of his finger in some water and just a drop or two from it would bring some relief. That phrase, I am in anguish, it's an interesting phrase. When you break it down grammatically, it's actually referring to how one would torment themselves. You say, well, how could someone torment themselves in hell? Well, no one knows for sure, but my theory on this is that the self-torment is self-regret or regret. Anguish, anguish over knowing that it didn't have to be that way. So point number one, people in hell desire comfort. Point number two, they express concern. Verses 27 and 28. Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. Now, see, to me, this is probably the most horrific part of hell. I mean, it's all horrific, but this is what makes hell, hell. That will actually be able to express concern. And everyone in hell will have this thought at some point or continually. I hope my children don't ever come here. I hope my husband or wife doesn't ever come here. I hope my grandkids don't ever come here. Or maybe they'll have this thought. You know, I know that so-and-so goes to church, so, so maybe they'll tell my kids about this place at Christmas or Easter when they go to church. But then they might have this thought. Why should I expect them to tell my kids or my grandkids about Jesus and how not to end up here? They never warned me about this place. They told me who they voted for. They told me they believed about what they believed about the Second Amendment. They told me what political party they were aligned with. They told me what they thought about COVID and wearing masks and social distancing, but they never told me about this place and how I didn't have to go here. So according to Jesus' description of hell, people who go there will desire comfort or relief. People in hell will express concern. And the third thing Jesus said about those in hell, 
they will seek consolation, verse 30. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. So now the rich man appeals to Abraham, and please note with me how he does this, by, by someone rising from the dead and going to them. See, folks, that's not a coincidence. That's not a coincidence. That is a picture of Christ and his resurrection. So the rich man tells Abraham, look, if someone rose from the dead and went and told my brothers, told my household, then they believe for sure. And Abraham's response to this is really interesting. Look what he says in verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. See, understand, the Jews recognized Moses as the author of the first five books of the Old Testament and the prophets as the authors of the rest of the Old Testament. And remember, at the time this conversation would have taken place, there was no New Testament. This was pre-New Testament. So when Abraham says, look, if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, basically he's saying, look, if they won't believe what the Bible says, you see that? That's basically what he's saying. If they won't believe what the Bible says, then they wouldn't believe it if someone came back from the dead. Does that sound familiar? Someone rising from the dead and telling people the truth, and they didn't believe him. Not only did they not believe him, they killed him. The story that we're looking at here is describing hell before the resurrection of Christ. We know that because of where Lazarus was, a place called Abraham's side, or the old English, King James says Abraham's bosom, which is apparently where believers went before the resurrection of Christ. This is really for another sermon, but, but before the resurrection of Jesus, God's people apparently went to a place uh, of waiting that was near Abraham. Apparently there was a, a couple of sort of like compartments with, with a chasm between them that's separating them. One was hell where people were tormented. The other was a place called Abraham's bosom. And that was apparently a place of waiting for the Old Testament saints, which poses the question, how will Old Testament saints be judged since they live before Jesus? Great question. The answer is they'll be judged according to how they live their lives in accordance with God's law and God's word. They didn't have Jesus, but they had the word that had been spoken to them by Moses and the prophets. So this story gives us a glimpse of hell before the resurrection. What about after the resurrection? What about hell as it exists now? Well, here's what we know. It is a scientific fact that there are two physical properties on this planet that keep us sane and stable. Our physical and mental stability rests primarily on these two properties, light and solid. Light helps us find and maintain our bearings. If we can see where we're going, what we're doing, what's out there, then there's a, a sense of assurance and confidence with that. According to the Bible's description of hell, there is no light. It's described as a place of outer or total and complete darkness. 13 times in the Bible, in both the Old and New Testaments, hell is described as a place of darkness, which means for those who would say, well, if I'm going to hell, at least I'm going to be with my friends. No, you won't. I'm sorry. No, you won't. It looks like people in hell won't see anyone. So, so much for that big fraternity party that some people think is going to be in hell. Not only will people in hell not ever see anyone, they'll also never be able to talk to anyone except themselves. You say, well, what about the rich man talking to Abraham? That, that even took place before the resurrection. Apparently, the, the horror of hell gets amped up after the resurrection. You won't ever see or talk to anyone in hell. There's no light there. All, you know why there's no light there? Because all the light's going to be in heaven. Did you know that there's no sun in heaven? That's right. Jesus is the light source of heaven. Isn't that cool? And the reason that there's no light in hell is because all the source of light's going to be in heaven. 
We need light to maintain our sanity. The second thing that we need is solid. Being able to, to hold on to, grab onto something helps us keep mentally stable on this planet. Just being able to sit down or, or walk or run or pick up something. In the book of Revelations, actually chapters 9, 11, 17, and 20, in each of those chapters, hell is described as a bottomless pit. So apparently in hell, people will never touch anything. They'll never sit down. They'll never walk. They'll never stand. Never be able to reach out and touch anything. Light and solid are crucial to our sanity and mental stability, and neither of those will be in hell. In addition to our mental stability, there are a couple of things crucial to our emotional well-being and stability, rest and hope. Now, while rest could certainly be considered something crucial to our physical well-being, it's also true, and you all know this, if you go too long without rest, it catches up with you emotionally, doesn't it? See, the way that I know if I've gone too long without adequate rest is when my wife turns to me and says, you need to take a nap. Our kindergarten teachers were right. We need to take a nap. When we get too tired, it does affect us. And in this life, we know that if we get too tired, we're not the same person. Right? We just need just a, just a, just a little power nap. Right? And we'll feel better. Revelation 14, verse 11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. People in hell will have no rest. Hope. The second thing we need for our emotional stability and well-being is hope. There is no hope in hell. In fact, hell personifies hopelessness. On this earth, in this life, there's always hope. Do you realize that? Think about this. Someone who commits suicide is someone who Satan lied to and somehow convinced that what was true of hell was also true on earth, that there is no hope in this life. So why go on living? In reality, there is hope in this life. As long as you're alive, as long as you're breathing, you have hope because you can still turn to God. Not so in hell. Now, one last thing, on a few occasions when describing hell, Jesus used a word that no one had ever used before, but it was a word that as soon as the Jews heard it, as soon as his audience heard this, they knew exactly what he was talking about. And it was the word Gehenna. It means Valley of Hena. Now, quick history lesson here. When the Canaanites lived in that region, it was called the Valley of Hinnom. In fact, the Old English version, the King James uses this phrase, and instead of Gehenna, it says the Valley of Hinnom. The Canaanite word was Hinnom. The Hebrew word was Hena. The word was used to describe an area just, just west and south of the old city of Jerusalem. It's where the valley at the base of Mount Zion on the north meets the, with the Kidron Valley from the south on the west side of the city. The valley was called Gehenna. It was a city dump. It was the Jerusalem transfer station, as it were. And there was always a continual fire smoldering in this valley because people were constantly bringing their trash and their refuse out, refuse out to burn it. Oftentimes, when someone died and they were very, very poor and didn't have any money or resources for a proper burial, they would sometimes bring their body to this valley to dispose of them. And if the wind was from the west, the people in Jerusalem could smell that burning flesh. But here's another important point. Throughout history, anytime the city of Jerusalem was attacked and God's people were taken into captivity, they would oftentimes learn some very, very bad habits while they were in captivity. One of those bad habits was idolatry and pagan worship. One of those pagan worship practices was child sacrifice. 
And we know for a fact that child sacrifice was both a Babylonian and Chaldean practice where they would offer up some of their children as, as a sacrifice to a pagan god by the name of Molech. And we know that at least two of Israel's kings did this, Manasseh and Ahab. Both of those kings introduced child, uh, child uh, worship or child sacrifice into God's people, into their worship of God. Now, what I'm about to tell you is just one reason why this is such a difficult subject to talk about. But oftentimes what they would do when they would make these child sacrifices, they would force the children to walk into the fire alive. Even using a whip to prod them and drive them into the fire. Jesus used a phrase that every Jew would understand when he described what hell was like. He said, it is like Gehenna. Maybe he even pointed to the southwest. He said, it's like Gehenna. Maybe he pointed to the southwest to punctuate the point. And if that weren't enough, a couple of times he would punctuate it further with this statement. And most of you have heard this phrase before and weren't sure exactly where it came from. But here is the source of that statement in Matthew 13, 49 to 51. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be, here it is, weeping and gnashing of teeth. That, dear ones, is where that phrase came from. These young boys and girls who are being offered up as sacrifice to the pagan god Molech would be in so much pain and agony that they would weep and groan and cry out and grind their teeth while they were being burned alive. And in using that word Gehenna, Jesus was saying as he's saying, look, I'm trying to tell you, I'm trying to warn you, I'm trying to paint a clear picture of what this place is like so that you won't end up there. Now, I am completely aware that many of you right now are thinking, Pastor, I don't know if I want to serve a God like that. I don't know if I want to serve a God who would send good people to hell. See, this is the fundamental breakdown where our society is where our society is today. In fact, this may be the number one root problem and misbelief about our nature and about God. Because, dear ones, God doesn't send anyone to hell. And you need to understand that. God doesn't send good people to hell. What we need to understand is we are inherently not good people. Not you, not me, not anyone. And I know this goes against everything that our culture teaches us. Well, we've got a good heart. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't, I don't. The Bible says our hearts are desperately wicked, sick. Jeremiah said, no, no, no. No one has a good heart. Our hearts are deceitful. They're sick. Say, well, we're basically a good person. No, you're not. No, you're not. We're all sinful people. I lie. I cheat. I've stolen. And I'm guessing you have too. If you for a moment stood in front of the holiness of God, you would recognize the depth of your wickedness. Dear ones, we are not inherently good people. We have to recognize this about God. He is holy and he is just. And he cannot be holy without being just. And because he is just, he must punish wrongdoing. But in addition to being just, he is also love. Love is not just what he does, it's who he is. So why do we talk about hell? Because what you believe about eternity affects how you live today. And if we don't understand the horrors of hell, we'll never truly appreciate the goodness and the grace 
of the price that God paid by sending his son so that we could have eternal life and not have to go there. It's kind of a corny illustration, but if you were to leave here in a couple minutes, you're driving home and you saw your neighbor's house on fire, you wouldn't just drive on by and say, oh, someone else will tell them, would you? Well, your neighbor's house isn't on fire, but your neighbor is. Let me pray for you. Father, I do pray that your truth would transform us. Just like the rich man on the other side with a sense of urgency to reach his brothers. God, give us an eternal perspective. Help us to live for what lasts. Help us to live our lives unattached from this world, this place that we're only visiting for a short time. And help us to know you and your truth and your power, your grace, and help us to live in light of what lasts forever. Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom. Give us the words to say as we share this truth, this horrific truth with others. I pray that you would send people that know you. Send us to show your love, not out of a condemning way, not a, but, but out of a, a, a grace-filled, loving heart that is genuinely concerned about their eternal destiny. May your loving kindness draw them to a place of repentance to know the goodness and the grace of your son, Jesus. And if you're here with us this morning or part of our e-campus watching online and after listening to this message, you realize that, you know, I'm really not walking in the grace and forgiveness that God offers us through Jesus. If that's you, it would be my honor to lead you in a prayer where you can receive that love and grace. If you would just pray this simple prayer after me to say, Lord Jesus, I realize now that I need the grace and forgiveness that, that you offer me through Jesus Christ. I, I don't want to just live for me anymore. I want to live for you. So today I turn my life over to Jesus. I surrender my life to you, Lord. Save me, heal me, fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to begin living for you. In Jesus' name.